0: Good morning. My name's Drew. I'm one of the pastors here. Let me add my welcome to Aubrey's. It's very good to be with you this morning. All right, first things first. Raise your hand if you, like me, uh, still have a certain evergreen conifer with lights and ornaments hogging the attention of your living. Yes, you naughty, naughty Anglicans. (laughs) What are we going to do with you? Uh, Pray that you don't end up like Mike and Joetta Deaton, who just ended up succumbing to Christmas fever and uh, now line their living room with Christmas lights year round. Yeah. Yeah. Joetta can get away with it because she's an artist, but for the rest of us, it's time to move on. And why is that? It's because today, as Aubrey mentioned earlier, marks the beginning of a new season in the church calendar, today is the feast of the Epiphany. It's the culmination. It's what uh, it's what the Christmas season has been leading us toward, and it also begins what's called the season of the Epiphany, which runs until Ash Wednesday, the beginning of Lent. The word Epiphany means "aha," or it means appearing. It refers to the star that appeared to the wise men uh, in our gospel reading. And during Epiphany, the church all around the world celebrates the manifestation of Jesus as the Savior of the whole world. But the simple message of, of Epiphany is this. The gospel is for everyone, and it impacts everything. The gospel is for everyone and it impacts everything. That's the message I'd like for us to keep in mind as we take a closer look at Matthew chapter 2. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. And let's allow that simple epiphany message to guide and shape our time in three parts. The gospel for everyone impacting everything. So first, the gospel. What is it, anyway? uh, Is it an escape from punishment? Is it a political project that's intended to rid the world of crime and poverty? Is it a message of unconditional acceptance and non-judgment? Is it an inspiration to lead a better life? We know that the word gospel means good news, but exactly what good news are we talking about? It's kind of like that line in The Princess Bride, you keep using that word. (laughs) I don't think it means what you think it means. So let's be good moderns and return to the original source here. If we want to know what the word gospel means, one of the best things we can do is to see how Matthew first uses it in the book he wrote by that very name, the Gospel of Matthew. And when we look at the Gospel of Matthew, what we find is that the word gospel is almost always associated with the word kingdom, this loaded word from the Old Testament that refers to the saving reign of God. So before we look at chapter 2, Flip over to chapter 4, verse 23. Chapter 4, verse 23. Here is the first time the word gospel is used in the New Testament. And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Literally, the good news about the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. This gospel of the kingdom, this is what becomes Jesus' main message throughout his whole ministry. It's the good news that in him, in Jesus, the long-awaited kingdom of God has finally arrived. Now, what does this mean? It means primarily that God is now taking charge of, of a world that has rebelled against him. And that's not to say that God wasn't reigning to begin with. God has always been reigning, and he will continue to reign forever. But the point is that the world has not always acknowledged that rule. In the Old Testament, God didn't bring his rule to bear in a complete way. It says that he winked at sin. But now, Jesus says, no longer. He's going to take charge. He's going to put things back the way they should be. Injustice has filled the earth. God's going to make it right. War has filled the earth. God's going to form a humble and meek new humanity. Sickness has filled the earth. God's going to get rid of it. He's going to heal it. God's going to fix everything. But all this depends on God Taking his throne. And this is what Jesus is saying. God is about to take his throne. And he's about to deal with all the injustice and evil and sin and wickedness. So returning now to chapter 2. In chapter 2 verse 6. When the chief priests and scribes quote that prophecy to Herod. and, And tell Herod that Israel's ruler is coming. They're not just playing Bible trivia. Oh, I know. <laughs> or, or doing a sword drill like we used to do decades ago in vacation Bible school. They're announcing the gospel. Never mind, for the time being, what they believe about Jesus. What I want us to see is that they're announcing to Herod the good news that Israel has held on to for centuries that God himself would one day return, that he would come back and fulfill Israel's wildest hopes and dreams that the Old Testament recounts. This is the gospel. It's an announcement. Uh, In the words of CNN, it's breaking news. So just imagine that headline on the screen. Breaking news, possible sighting of Israel's God returning to earth. World leaders perplexed. (laughs) So do you see the Jewish origins of our gospel? It's about the king of the Jews uh, and the people of Israel and the land of Judah being redeemed. And all of this is happening in a rinky-dink town called Bethlehem in a forgotten corner of the Roman Empire called Israel. It makes you think, doesn't it? What on earth does this have to do with us? How exactly did we get wrapped up in all this? And not just us, but the whole world, billions of people around the world. What happened? Uh, Epiphany reminds us that this gospel, although centered and originating around this people called Israel, is about more than that. The gospel is for everyone. Look, at, look with me at verses 1 and 2. The beginning of our story. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. You know, the gospel of Matthew is often called the most Jewish of all four Gospels. If you flip back a page, you'll see that it begins with this long genealogy that bores some people to tears. But, it, but it, it gets us rooted into the Old Testament. But interestingly, the first people in Matthew's Gospel who are drawn to worship Jesus are Gentiles. That's who these wise men, these magi, are. They're Gentiles, non Jews, and probably from Persia. So they're astrologers uh, looking at the stars and constellations. They're scientists studying the complexity of creation. They're bookworms and scholars reading all sorts of books and likely the Jewish scriptures which they probably encountered a few centuries earlier when Israel was in exile and were probably keeping on their coffee tables as a keepsake. But they'd read it. But here's what makes these wise men really stand out. It's their astounding openness. It's their humility. They're scholars, but they're not skeptics. And that's something we moderns don't really have a category for, unfortunately. Because in our age, knowledge begins with skepticism. Knowledge begins with doubt. With this balking attitude toward the accomplishments of people in the past. But these wise men, they're different. They're coming from one of the greatest empires on the planet, with all kinds of access to the latest technology, the newest ideas, and the greatest comforts. I mean, it's Persia. But what stands out is that the starting point of their knowledge is God. Whoever He is, whatever He is, wherever He is. And it's so easy for us to focus on who these men weren't, rather than who they were. So these men probably didn't pray the Psalms every day uh, or recite the Jewish Shema. They didn't tithe or keep the Sabbath or follow the dietary laws and regulations that the Jewish people were expected to do. But they had a posture of intellectual humility. They were more ready to doubt themselves in their own knowledge than they were to doubt God's revelation to them. And so what does God do? Well, he meets them where they are. Uh, And isn't this so incredibly kind of God? God notices not what they aren't doing. He notices what they are doing. Um, He sees where they are looking. And he brings them close to him in whatever way he can. In this case, it's by a star. Now, contrast this with Herod and the Jewish leaders. They know it all, Uh, especially the scribes. They know all about this coming king. But they don't take the six-mile walk, the six-mile journey to go and see him. God has been speaking to them clearly and for all these years, and now they refuse to come. And it's not just them, right? We see in verse 3 that it wasn't just Herod who was troubled, it was all Jerusalem with him. This is really bad. This, This attitude has spread and festered, not just in the palace, not just in the schools of religion, but among all the people of this most prominent city. God had made Israel for the purpose of being a light to the nations, To bring them in. They were the ones who were supposed to be leading the way. And we see glimpses of this in the Old Testament with King Solomon. Uh, That's what our psalm was about. And how uh, the nations streamed to Israel because of his wisdom. and, And gave gifts to beautify the temple he was building for God. But by the end of his life, Solomon had practically abandoned God. He'd gotten distracted Or become complacent so that he failed to be that light and Israel followed suit and failed with him. That's the story of their career. That's the story we need to know as we're reading this passage. It's not that God wasn't leading them or he wasn't speaking clearly. It's that they had stopped listening and that they were refusing to follow his leadership. That's what's happening here. Herod and the scribes refuse to visit and worship Jesus. So God, who will be worshipped, invites those who actually will respond to him. And surprisingly, that's these pagan, wise men, astrologers from the East. This is what Epiphany is all about. It's about God welcoming outsiders like us to come close to him and have an abiding relationship with him in Jesus. Think about it. Who in the world are we that we should be invited into this ancient, sort of obscure people Israel's story? In the grand scheme of things, what is Harrisonburg, Virginia? Who am I? Who are you? If most of us have never even been to Israel. If we hadn't been taught about it, we'd probably think about it just as much as we think about, I don't know, Luxembourg or Wales or Guam. If we have any Guamites in the room, I apologize. But what happened was that God came to us. And it might have been through the teaching of your parents or through a friend who invited you to church Or in a powerful experience that strangely drew you in. These events are glimpses into something beyond the ordinary. It's like the star of Bethlehem. These events are stars. Placed by God in the course of your life. To direct you. To lead you. To your fullest life in him. So think about where God might be leading you right now, how God might be leading you. He's not absent. If he can speak to the magi through a star, certainly he can speak to us who are in Harrisonburg through the mundane and the ordinary if we have eyes to see. What is he doing that appears so ordinary to you that you might be able to look through and see the traces that he's leaving? That's That's the thing about epiphany. It's not a one-time event. Uh, It alerts us to the way God always works. He has not left the world bereft of his presence. He leaves hints and signs. And these are trails to be discovered by anyone who seeks to pursue the holy in daily life. God showed up, and he keeps showing up in our world in Jesus And the more we live deeply into him and calibrate our imaginations according to him, the more likely we are to experience the depth and breadth of God's love for us. His love is for everyone. You don't have to work for his friendship. You don't have to make it happen. All he asks is that you be open to his leading, that you be open And that you try to follow the path that he's laying out for you. So the gospel is for everyone. This gospel, it's for everybody in the whole world. Not just Israel, but we can't stop there. The gospel is for everyone and it impacts everything. After the wise men visit Jesus and worship him, Matthew tells us at the very end of our story in verse 12, that they departed to their own country by another way. Remember, Herod had told them to report back to him. But after they meet Jesus, everything's different. Their whole way of life is different, and they can't go back the way they'd come. It reminds me of the conversion of a Christian who lived in the 4th century, St. Augustine. He lived a pretty wild life, Um, He'd taken more than one mistress. He'd fathered at least one child outside of marriage. And he'd run from the Christianity that his mother Monica tried to instill in him. But when he was 33 years old, as he was sitting by himself in a garden, he heard a voice saying, take and read, take and read. He didn't know where this voice came from. And so now let me read to you what Augustine says happened next. He says, I snatched the Bible up, opened it, and in silence read the paragraph on which my eyes first fell. And it's a passage from Romans chapter 13. He reads, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its desires. He says, I wanted to read no further, nor did I need to, for instantly as the sentence ended, there was infused in my heart something like the light of full certainty, and all the gloom of doubt vanished away. I imagine this was something like what the wise men experienced When we meet Jesus, everything must change. It's like the wise men. Once they'd seen Jesus for who he really is, they end up giving him their most costly gifts and possessions, and they can't go back the way they'd come from. The gospel impacts everything. Jesus is the king. That means he sets the rules, and that we trust him to only make rules that will be good for us. My wife and I have this saying with our children, why do mommy and daddy make rules? And they have to say, to keep you safe. <laughs> because once Jesus becomes the center of your life, he becomes the center of everything. It's a blazing magnetic center that touches everything. The reason for everything you do or don't do becomes him. He becomes the center of of your finances, so that now what you spend and save is directly related not to your own will and plans for your life, but to his. He becomes the center of your sexuality, so that now you only use your bodies and give them in ways that honor him. He becomes the center of your health and fitness. This is an example you can only use at the beginning of the year, right? (laughs) So that now you exercise and eat well, not for vanity's sake, but for him. But still, let's kick it up a notch. Because one thing that's absolutely clear in this passage is that the gospel impacts everything, including politics. Herod knew this. That's why he started wringing his hands and scheming for a way to eliminate the threat. Now, it's true that for many people in the modern period, Christianity has been seen as an apolitical religion. Uh, In school, we're taught about the evils of Western Christendom and all the religious wars and violence that happened in Europe as a result. And so as the story goes, as we've grown out of that and become civilized and come to the new world, uh, we've successfully now separated politics and religion. But the problem is that in order to do that, we have to radically, exchange, uh, radically change what the word religion means. And the Bible doesn't really help us in that project because in the Bible, Israel's a theocracy and Jesus won't keep his mouth shut about this thing called the kingdom. But we temper that every chance we get, right? Right? We say that Jesus' kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, that it doesn't really have to do with things on earth. Or we point to the fact that Jesus really did say to Pontius Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world. And then we'll point to Paul in the book of Romans who says that Christians should submit to political authority. And we say, see, Uh, Christianity doesn't have a bone to pick with politics. It's apolitical. It's about souls and eternity. But that doesn't solve the problem that Jesus really did claim to be a king. And when he announced to be a king, when he was announced to be a king, all the earthly rulers got really nervous and went into Nero mode, killing innocent people and holding on, clutching the power that they had with a white-knuckled grip. You see, Jesus doesn't deny that he is a king. Or that he has a kingdom on earth. What he denies is that his kingdom is anything like Herod's, anything like Pilate's, anything like Caesar's. But he admits that he is a king with a kingdom, and the whole ancient world knew it. A big part of the gospel, then, a big part of the good news, is that God is restarting politics, and he's already begun. In Jesus, he's creating a new nation, a new Israel, a new people who are the very nucleus of his project, the church. It starts with Jesus, who leads the way, and then he's joined by, well, he's joined by the very people who've been burned and victimized by the corrupt earthly rulers, the people who have been neglected, the blind. The lame, the deaf, the poor, the weak, the ashamed, the broken, the weary. Epiphany tells us that this is who we once were. But now, God has drawn us in. And he's drawn us in by this gospel, this royal announcement, this declaration That the king of the Jews has become king of everything. And he's going to make all things new. Not just Israel, but all over the world, all over the cosmos, all over creation. That's the gospel the wise men discerned and responded to. And that's the gospel we must respond to. That's the gospel we get to respond to. And it's all because God has appeared to us. So in the words of Isaiah the prophet, Arise, shine, for your light has come.